You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. This week's Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.10. It's Tuesday, October 13th. And behalf on the EOT team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. Today is a special edition. It's the Diversity Education Week show. We are participating by bringing you an hour of programming that promotes awareness about cultural enrichment and foster intercultural understanding. Diversity Education Week 2015 kicked off on Sunday, October 11th, with 35 events on the calendar planned throughout the week. There is a program of evaluation for participants who attend at least two programs and complete the evaluation to be entered in a drawing for prizes. This show is one of those programs, so later in the show we will be sharing the password code to enter the drawing. This week we have an interview that is very apt. Yesterday was the federally recognized holiday, Columbus Day. On campus, we celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day, a holiday that acknowledges the experience of people that lived in Americas long before Christopher Columbus arrived. In the spring, Nick Savage, the former public affairs director of WKNC, interviewed Native American students on campus that supported a bill that passed in student government to ask the university to change their calendar. We'll give you an update of what's happening now. And as always, Peter Spazzini brings us the community calendar. Jake Winters has a review of the film This Is Not a Film, an Iranian documentary smuggled from Iran to the Keynes Film Festival in a flash drive hidden inside a birthday cake. Kevin Kronk interviews Dr. Leda Lunarni, a professor in electrical and computer engineering, about her experiences coming to the United States from Brazil and teaching in a male-dominated field. Kevin Kronk has the diversity-related news from North Carolina, and Saif Hassan has the news beyond the headlines. Minority-owned businesses bouncing back from recession. The cloud of the Great Recession has a silver lining for minority-owned businesses as the economy recovers. Analysis of U.S. Census data by a nonprofit management consulting firm, the Institute, finds that African-American-owned firms expanded their employee numbers at a higher rate than white employers' firms. Comments from Andrea Harris, senior fellow at the Institute. Minority-owned businesses are rebounding following the Great Recession, according to a new report by the Institute, an organization that aims to expand and diversify North Carolina's business base. 
Its analysis finds that African American owned firms expanded their employee numbers at a higher rate than white employers' businesses. Andrea Harris, senior fellow at the Institute, says the economic downturn prompted people to explore all their options. As there were layoffs, people started to look at what they could do to naturally create income. Or if they worked in jobs where their hours were cut back, then naturally they looked at what they could do to supplement their income. The Institute used U.S. Census data, which indicates that companies owned by African Americans added employees at a rate of 9% between 2007 and 2012. In the same time period, white owned firms added to their workforce at a rate of slightly less than 2%. Harris adds minority owned businesses often have a direct impact on communities that might not otherwise be served by new businesses. People are regaining confidence in all of what's possible out here because we need as many minority owned firms as we can because so many of the minority-owned firms also have relationships in the underserved and underdeveloped communities. According to the Minority Business Development Agency with the U.S. Department of Commerce, minority-owned firms contribute $1 trillion in economic output and support 5.8 million jobs every year. NC Immigrants Impacted by Controversial Bill it's now up to Governor Pat McCrory whether legislation that could impact the number of people jailed in the state for a lack of government-issued ID becomes law. House Bill 318 could impact immigrants, the elderly, homeless, and others. Comments from Lori Kamala, NC Immigrants' Rights Program Coordinator, American Friends Service Committee. There is growing pressure on Governor Pat McCrory to veto legislation that would impact a variety of population in the state, including immigrants and migrant workers. House Bill 318, called by supporters the Protect North Carolina Workers Act, would prevent local police from accepting multiple forms of ID during a traffic stop. Lori Kamala with the American Friends Service Committee, one of the organizations opposed to the bill, says law enforcement is concerned about the impact of this legislation. If we limit the kind of ID that law enforcement can accept, there's more more and more people who are going to be funneled into jail, and that is not a good use of anybody's resources. Currently in Greensboro, there is a program to accept community-issued IDs, and organizers of the program estimate it has saved the equivalent of two full-time police officers' salaries in the form of unnecessary arrest for the lack of ID. Supporters of the legislation argue it ensures the state is upholding immigration law. An amendment passed in a different bill could allow law enforcement to accept some forms of ID, but the specifics of the new policy are unclear. The legislation would also prevent municipalities from adopting sanctuary city policies, which when in place enable communities to opt against following federal immigration enforcement. But Kamala says it could have some unintended consequences for members of the community who have difficulty securing a government-issued ID. This bill is very problematic not only for immigrant families who often have trouble getting legally recognized forms of ID, but also for the elderly and for homeless individuals. House Bill 318 could also impact SNAP benefit for more than 100,000 North Carolinians. Groups including the AFL-CIO and others are calling on the governor to veto the bill. Women's Equality Day. Where does North Carolina stand? August 26th was Women's Equality Day, and a new national survey ranks North Carolina near the top for one consideration that is important to women. The state is doing better than most when it comes to political empowerment, with more female elected lawmakers serving compared to other states. Overall, the state ranked 11th in the country for women's equality, explains Jill Gonzalez in the new survey group WalletHub. 
And as far as North Carolina is concerned, it is doing quite well. It just missed the top 10 coming in at number 11, especially excelling in education ranks. According to the Center for American Progress, women make up slightly less than 15% of executive offices and less than 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs. Women's Equality Day commemorates women gaining the right to vote in the U.S. with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. The Tar Heel State is ranked 34th for workplace environments, a category that combines such topics as wages, the number of female executives, and entrepreneurs. Gonzalez says the results leave room for improvement. North Carolina could have received a little bit better rankings when it came to the workplace environment, the number of executives. The gap here is about 65%. So in these executive positions, men hold them 65% more than women do. The Wallet Hub report combined findings of seven government agencies and organizations for its rankings. The World Economic Forum ranked the U.S. 20th worldwide for success in closing the gender gap. That puts the country behind such developing nations as Rwanda and more established economies such as Iceland. This has been a North Carolina News Service report. I'm Kevin Cronk, and this is Eye in the Triangle. Saif Hassan, and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. The Islamic State, or ISIS, is the prime suspect in the Ankara bombings that killed nearly 100 on Saturday, according to the Turkish Prime Minister Ahmet Davutoglu. No group has said it carried out the attack, but the government believes that two male suicide bombers caused the explosions, hitting a peace rally. The official death toll is 97, but rally organizers have put the figure at 128. Funerals for more of the victims were held on Monday, with some mourners expressing anger at the government. Saturday's twin explosions ripped through a crowd of activists outside the main railway station in the Turkish capital. They were due to take part in a rally calling for an end to the violence between the Turkish government forces and the militant Kurdistan Workers' Party, or the PKK. There is anger in Turkey that authorities were unable to prevent such a major attack and some skepticism from opposition groups about the government's claims. The prime minister said authorities were close to identifying one of the suicide bombers using DNA tests and this would help to pinpoint which group was responsible for the attack. He had previously said that ISIS, the PKK, and far-left groups were all capable of such an attack. The situation in Turkey was tense even before the Ankara bombings. The ceasefire with the PKK had broken down and there had been clashes between the militants and security forces, killing at least 150 people since July. Some local media have implicated the brother of a man who carried out an ISIS bombing in the southern border town of Saruk earlier in July, which killed more than 30 people. Turkey announced after the Saruk bombing that it would allow its southern Incirlik airbase to be used by the U.S.-led coalition targeting ISIS in Syria. Turkey, a NATO member, shares a long land border with its unstable southern neighbor. The Ankara bombings are the deadliest in Turkey's history. 
These attacks will not turn Turkey into a Syria, according to the Prime Minister. Speaking on Turkish television, PM Tavuklu said the bombings were an attempt to influence elections on November 1st, after a vote in June left no party able to form a government. Many of the victims were activists of the pro-Kurdish HDP party, which is now saying that it's considering canceling all election rallies. It believes its delegation at the march was specifically targeted. The HDP gained seats in parliament for the first time in June's vote, depriving President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's AK party of its majority. The AK party condemned the attack and announced it was suspending all of its rallies until Friday. In a statement released on Monday, the HDP's leader said the AK party was using an escalation of violence as a strategy to push the leftist pro-Kurdish party back under Turkey's high electoral threshold for entering parliament. They linked the Ankara bombings to the Saruk attack and the fatal bombing of an HDP electoral rally in June, labeling them a chain of massacres and calling on the international community to take a firmer stance with Turkey's government. Critics of the Turkish government believe it is using ISIS as a scapegoat and that murky elements of a so-called deep state are to blame for the bombings. The former chief of China's biggest oil firm has been sentenced to 16 years in prison for accepting bribes, according to state media. Jiang Jimin was previously head of China National Petroleum Corporation and its listed firm, PetroChina. He was arrested in 2013 shortly after taking a government job. Jiang was an ally of former security chief Zhu Yongkong, the biggest official caught in the ongoing corruption crackdown in China. A statement from the court in the Hubei province carried by local media said Jiang was found guilty of receiving bribes, possessing large amounts of assets of unknown provenance, and abusing power as a state-owned company employee. Media outlets said that Jiang had amassed a total of 14.8 million yuan in assets. That is about $2.3 million. Besides his jail sentence, authorities have confiscated assets worth 1 million yuan from him, according to local media. Jiang had risen through the ranks of the state-owned CNPC, which is the parent company of PetroChina, in the late 90s and 2000s to become chairman. He left CNPC in April 2013 to take his highest position yet as head of the state-owned Assets Supervision and Administration Commission, a cabinet-level position. He was arrested a few months after assuming that position. China has been conducting widespread arrests of both low- and high-ranking officials since President Xi Jinping took over in 2012. One of its biggest hauls was Zhu, the former head of China's Ministry of Public Security, who was sentenced to life imprisonment for corruption in June. However, many suspect that the downfall of Jiang and others can be attributed to ongoing political infighting. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines.
Could you introduce yourself? My name is Leida Lunardi, and I am a professor in electrical engineering here at NC State. Okay, Dr. Lunardi, what specifically are you focusing on in your research? Technically speaking, we divide in areas. So I am in nanoelectronics and photonics, but I make devices, means that some of my devices, they do specific things. Uh, nowadays, what I do, actually, I have students working on photo detectors, means that they make devices that they convert a uh, light into electrical current. That's basically what I do. And they have specific functions. So I focus on devices means that they can be transistor, they can be terminal devices. Basically, that's what they are. Okay, so like everything with circuits and, and all Yeah, that. I worked in industry 18 years before coming to NC State. I didn't start in academia. I worked in industry and that's what I actually did. I worked in components and worked in actually integration of this component in circuits for applications because they were focused in applications when I was in industry. When did you know or how did you know that you wanted to get into electrical style industry and then academia? Actually, I was not an electrical engineer per se because I started in physics because when I was growing up, my family, I, I am the first generation going to college. My father, actually, he wanted us to study, but uh, we were six children. I was one of those smart kids that was always, I wanted year ahead in school. But he never never knew what I wanted to do, so he just let me go ahead. I was supposed to go to medical school because that's what my mother wanted, but as soon as I saw the cadavers, I couldn't stand it. So I had to find something in science that I liked, and I went to physics. I ended up going to physics because actually I didn't know about electrical engineering. And then I didn't want to continue. I went up to master's, and I was very, very not satisfied with what I was doing. I decided to stop one year because of some tragedy that happened. Also, my father died and I had to work. But then when I went to do my PhD, that I came to US for a PhD, my professor actually asked me, you can do applied sciences, physics, or you can do electrical engineering. And I was fascinated because I could change my field. And I, I fell in love for electrical engineering. And I did actually a lot of basic courses in electrical engineering. And I started, actually, I did a lot of sophomore, I did junior courses. And then I found out that I should have been an electrical engineer since the beginning. That's the beauty of college. You always figure out halfway <laughs> through what you really wanted to do. No, very in my 20s I was doing that. <laughs> but I think that is the beauty of the American system. That's what it is. 34 years ago when I immigrated to this country. So you said actually your parents were pretty supportive then it seems of you getting into the sciences. Did anyone give you any pushback? I think it was interesting because they didn't think that I was going to work inside. They thought I was going to teach my children to be good students. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> eventually I was going to marry and have a lot of children, you know. Ah, like, so are there any challenges to being a woman in a primarily I guess male-dominated field? I think I see now looking back, it's different the culture because when I was a student in the physics field, there were many more women in my country than U.S. And even when I went in graduate school, I saw many more women in physics than in electrical engineering. And I remember taking classes and I was the only woman in some of the classes and I felt isolated and it feel isolated in a way because some of some things you cannot talk at the same level as you would talk feeling there are some sharing that you would have not that I you know I have a lot of male friends but I think sometimes you need support uh, emotional support from women I really feel that the diversity that we talk it's very good to have the same number of men and women because it's just a way that you approach solving problems 
problems. It's very different the way that you, just the way that you solve a problem is a little different. The discussion that you bring to the table, it's just different. And I can see I have children and I see the difference between how my daughter approaches from my sons. I think it's different the way to have women, to report to women supervisor than male supervisors. There is a, a very different approach. You need the diversity for problem solving in a sense and then also for support. From support, yes. I really think that sometimes I had very good supervisors that they were more, they had more empathy because they had daughters and they would tell me that. <laughs> and I thought it was very interesting because they felt that they became better citizens and better bosses because they had daughters. And I, I always wonder because they had mothers before. So I always wonder if that, I don't think in, in a technical level, everybody's even, but I think we, we should have more opportunities for everybody. Where did you say you were originally from? I was born in Brazil and I grew up in a family of immigrants. So it's like a double immigrants. <laughs> so did you see a big difference between there and here? Yes, because here I, I really like the supportive system that exists for immigrants. Like my family was an immigrant and they immigrated because they were accepted. And I think here I was always accepted. I came to study with a fellowship and I was accepted being an immigrant. And I really like that because we are contributing for the society the same way that my grandparents were contributing in Brazil. Yeah, I think that the countries that accept immigrants, they just gain because they are people that wanted to work. And more perspectives, more experiences, yes. different diversity. Yes. Do you see nowadays more diversity coming into the electrical engineering field? Oh, yes, I really think so. I try to talk to students and support the students because giving opportunities to everybody. Every time they invite me to talk to middle school students, to summer opportunities, I have programs. I For years, I had programs for summer students. I have a, a special a grant from the National Science Foundation to support the students that uh, need financial aid and they are from underrepresented groups because I really think that we needed to offer opportunities and uh, some people they don't have engineers in their family so they don't know how an engineer how wonderful is the profession of engineers mainly for women is very liberating because you can be independent you can be a consultant you can work you can have your own family you can work in industry you can work in academia it's just so empowered even anybody can be an engineer because and you work in groups I always like the idea of engineers because you can work in groups I like to talk so I always have my friends and working groups that goes kind of into the idea that in the past obviously men didn't let women be in the sciences but now there's obviously more acceptance and the message kind of needs to be pushed I guess in the culture and society and the media that women can do this it is happening more and more because they see more women trying to pursue but I still I don't think it's enough I remember when I was in graduate school in electrical engineering, we had double-digit women pursuing degrees. And I don't see that in my classes. I think some women, we don't see double digits. We see double digits, but we don't see all the degrees. I don't see double digits in all the degrees. And sometimes it's hard work in a sense, but I don't think it is. I think after you have a college degree, you're always going to work more than 40 hours. There is no way because what happens is that it's very intellectual 
work so you don't stop thinking about the work because sometimes some ideas they take a long time to incubate you have to refine the idea and sometimes it depends you know you start to work on an idea and you go to the wrong path and you have to discover why is not working technical work is like that sometimes you just let it be in your mind for a while and you have to take a walk you have to exercise sleep go to a movie because that idea is on your background so that's why it takes so long to refine a technical work and you have to talk to people and i think that's why you know students sometimes they don't realize that it's a bag of tricks you have to get your concepts and develop and mature and it takes a long time it definitely takes a lot of sleep sleep <laughs> is the big key i like that <laughs> <laughs> hopefully this doesn't come across offensive at all but do you think part of it is that some women just don't want to get into stem or do you think that we're not doing enough as a society to to really push i think it's not as glamorous because you, know, you don't see who makes a lot of money as an engineer right now for instance we see steve jobs but you see a lot of dropouts that were like bill gates is a billionaire but he's a dropout you don't see the accomplished scientists the accomplished engineers being valued by society actually you see a lot of sports being valued but you don't see what is really what makes life engineers improved so much life engineers improved everyday life everybody likes an iphone or a cellular phone but they don't understand how much work has been on the back of this how much what are the major advances that we had in society because engineers worked on that and they don't value the contributions as a whole we never see on tv the last engineer that we had as president was jimmy carter so they never see how important our engineers contribution and we never hear how engineer women are important for contributing for the society and i think this is what belitos and i don't think they see that women are really glamorous being engineers and sometimes they say they that's what i don't think attracts the girls when they are in middle school or i i would like to see more and you see some of the countries that they have margaret thatcher was a chemist angela merkel has a phd in chemistry i believe so you have that the countries that are very big powerful they have educated women in science and that's what i i would like to see in us actually yeah there needs to be more role models i see what your point is there's definitely often a lot of emphasis on the product and the final whatever they've created but not on the people who created it engineering is sort of like a non-glamorous <laughs> job it is no glamorous they usually don't show very very fashionable is a fashionable profession actually because you're very powerful you can make it you, know, you can make life better you can invent a lot change the world yeah and we have on campus we have very smart engineer women if you look on our college we have a very smart young engineer women. Definitely. So is there any words of advice that you'd like to give young engineering women or young women in middle school, elementary school? Yes, what I would suggest is that just discover engineer. We have actually the engineer place on campus that is run, the summer opportunity and just discover because it's a lot of fun. You play a lot of games and science is fun, but engineer is more fun because actually you adapt concepts of science and make it That's the fun of engineer because you get all the concepts of science and you make things work. 
engineers are very, very smart because they make life better. Without engineers, we wouldn't have beginning from cars, iPhones, everything. And thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I just would like to add that NC State has one of the best engineering colleges. It's one of the most comprehensive. We have nine departments and you can find a lot of engineering here. Definitely. And they have Hunt Library now. <laughs> <laughs> one of the best engineer libraries. Very beautiful. So you go and discover. Okay. All right. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Lita Lunardi, for coming in. I'm Kevin Cronk, and this is Eye on the Triangle. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle with your weekly movie review. This week will be a review of This Is Not a Film. This film or movie, or as it really should be called, documentary, brings us into the house of a man. The house is in Iran, and the man has been imprisoned within the house because of a film he had only just begun to produce. The film had been banned from production until changes were made to it, and Jafar Panahai decided to move ahead with production anyway and was arrested for his action. The film literally takes us through a day in the life of Jafar Panahai. We see him wake up, talk to his family, and it even shows him making tea. Even though the movie is only an hour and 14 minutes, it feels as though the movie is going through his whole day. Needless to say, it drags on. It feels as though the movie will never progress at points, and really it could be said that it never does. While this is not really all that exciting to watch, it makes a point. It also brings up what the title is all about. Truly, this documentary is not a film. It has no story and is instead meant to inform. Even though many scenes can be described as boring, there are gunshots heard in the distance. While Jafar takes notice of these gunshots, it is hard not to notice that he is accustomed to their sound, like someone living on a busy street is used to the sound of cars. He only goes to his balcony or window from time to time in order to look at what is going on and sometimes take video of it. Clearly, he is not bothered by it. Before seeing this movie, I knew that Middle Eastern countries had oppressive governments, but after seeing this film, it becomes all the more clear. The government controls everything, and that is just a fact of life. When Jafar is talking to his lawyer, she tells him that there is no way for him to get out of his sentence. Even the film union cannot say anything because that would put them at risk of being put in jail as well. The position that Jafar is in is that he must seek help from foreign entities, and that is exactly what he aimed to do with this documentary. Making this film was an extremely brave act of rebellion on Jafar's part. He was put on a work ban and was told that he was not allowed to direct or film anything. So by making this documentary of his day, he was breaking the law. Not only was Jafar breaking the law by making this film, but by helping him, the cameraman, whose name is too hard for me to pronounce, also put himself at risk. For sake of mentioning the cameraman's name, I'll try and pronounce it, but it's not going to be very good. Majtaba Mirta Maspa. From what is shown in the film, it's clear that this is Jafar's only chance to get out of his prison sentence. If no one in his own country can help him, then if he makes something that will be seen by the world, surely someone will come to his aid. The film does not seem desperate at all, and he maintains all dignity, never stopping to ask for any kind of help directly, and instead just documenting the condition of his life. At this point, you may be wondering how we can even see this film if his own government forbade the making of it. 
The film states that it was smuggled out of the country in a birthday cake, which I find hard to believe, but hey, anything is possible. The film was then shown at the Cannes Film Festival, where, as most films do, it gained the world's attention. Jafar stood up for what he believed was right and made a point. This documentary truly shows the power that film can have on people's ideas. It speaks to how powerful the medium is. If even a government as big as Iran is so afraid of what a film might inspire people to do, then it only proves that the medium should never be censored. If a government takes away the right to share whatever ideas that you can come up with, it is no longer doing the basic job of a government, protecting its citizens. Instead, it oppresses them. This Is Not a Film was widely praised, receiving high scores on all major film review sites and even being called one of the top 10 films of 2012. I do not want to mislead you in this review. The movie is boring to watch for the most part, but sometimes it is not whether a movie is entertaining that makes it great, but rather what it says. And in that, the movie succeeds in saying something that is not only important to the maker, but it also says something important to the world. A man is not free unless he can speak his mind, and in making this film, Jafar Panahai found his freedom. It is something to witness. I personally found the film to be like no other I had ever seen. I have watched documentaries before, but nothing with a message that had a meeting with such impact. Obviously, this has been said before, though. The United States Constitution wouldn't read the same way if the idea hadn't been thought before, but never has it come from a place with more meaning. The only thing I would tell anyone before watching this film is just watch it all the way through. Even though it drags on at times, make the effort to watch the entire thing through, because the ending, even though it may not have been intended in this way, makes the message loud and clear. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this review of This Is Not A Film. Thank you again for listening to this week's edition of The Movie Review. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. Have a good night. to you listeners out there. My name is Peter Swazeni, bringing you the community calendar. This is an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events going on campus and around the Raleigh-Durham area. I hope you all had a great fall break and are excited to get back into it. This week's segment of the community calendar is going to be pretty special. It's Diversity Week. 
And there are loads of events going on this week with the sole theme of diversity. So let me just go ahead and dive right into it. So on Wednesday morning, we have hashtag Colors of the Pack from 1130 to 1. This will be located at the Free Expression Tunnel. So you can go out and make an artistic splash with students proactively engaged towards activism knowledgeability. As they engage students, faculty, and staff for an interactive activity to explore how individuals identify and how they explore and express current issues resulting in a collective artistic piece unique to all involved. This event is sponsored by the students proactively engaged toward activism knowledgeability. Again, this event will be at the Free Expression Tunnel from 11 to 1. Also occurring on Wednesday morning at 11.30 will be the Respect the Pack t-shirt giveaway and events. This will be located at the Wolf Plaza. Come out and share your respect for the pack and get a t-shirt for it. This event is sponsored by the student government. So over in Poe Hall Second Floor Auditorium from 11.30 to 1.30 will be the Diversity Education Week Conversation and MYEN General Body Meeting. So go out and engage in discussion about the importance of diversity for students in the College of Education. Learn about specific ways that education and non-education majors can become active in their communities and schools to promote awareness and understanding of diversity. Additionally, they will also be collecting school supplies to donate to the Daniel Center of Math and Science in preparation of their Volunteering Diversity Awareness Day to the Daniel Center on October 16th. This event is sponsored by the Multicultural Young Educators Network, MYEN. Again, this event will be from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. in Poe Hall Second Floor Auditorium this Wednesday. The University Stability Office and Office of Multicultural Student Affairs will be sponsoring an event titled We Were Seeds. This event will be from 12.30 to 2 in the Tally Student Union Cultural Hearth. This program will explore the positive and sustainable impacts scholar activists have on their community. Research from NC State's own Dr. Chelsea Ann Guarez, NCSU sociology and anthropology professor, will be discussed as well as other community change agents. This event will be held in the Tally Student Union Cultural Hearth from 1230 to 2 and is sponsored by the University Stability Office and the Office of Multicultural Student Affairs. The College of Humanities and Social Sciences will be sponsoring a panel forum titled Research and Underrepresented Populations. This forum will be occurring at 4 to 5.30 in the afternoon at Codwell Lounge. Go out and join them for a forum that highlights our college's faculty and students' research with underrepresented populations. Panelists and poster presenters are humanities and social sciences faculty and students who are engaged in various research areas. Find out how you can get involved in similar types of research. Again, this event will be from 4 to 5 Wednesday afternoon in the Codwell Lounge. The Kappa Phi Lambda Sorority Incorporated and the NC State Women's Center will be sponsoring the event Victoria Chan, Connecting the Dots. This event will be going on from 7 to 8.30 Wednesday night in Poe Hall, room 216. Connecting the Dots will give NC State students' body a journey of Victoria's life, from not having money to buy a bicycle to traveling the world and working with Jackie Chan. From making a bet that she would never join a sorority to working as a Greek advisor and in higher education, a field that Asian Americans are not familiar with. She has worked with celebrities such as Usher, Britney Spears, and Will Smith, and had hoped to share advice given to her with the students. 
Again, this event will be 7 to 8.30 Wednesday night in Poe Hall, room 216. There are quite a number of events going on campus this week. Moving on to Thursday, October 15th. University Housing will be sponsoring the play Defamation. There will be two showings. One at 9 in the morning for faculty and staff, and then one at 7 at night for students. Defamation is a play that explores the highly charged issues of race, religion, gender, class, and the law with a twist. The audience is the jury. Through deliberations and post-show discussions, audiences engage in civil discourse and challenges preconceived notions. Again, there will be two showings this Thursday at 9 in the morning and at 7 at night. These showings will be located in the Mountain Piedmont Ballroom in the Tally Student Center. Respect the Pack will have another t-shirt giveaway and events at 11 o'clock at Centennial Campus and at 1 o'clock in the afternoon at the Vet School Campus Blue Commons area near the cafeteria. Go out and share your respect for the Pack and get a t-shirt. This event is sponsored by the student government. Theta Nu Chi Multicultural Sorority and Dive are hosting an event called Walk the Line from 6.30 to 8 Thursday night. This event will give you the opportunity to show your stance on a variety of issues that are prevalent on our campus and surrounding community. They will have a healthy discussion afterwards with light refreshments. So go out and see where you stand on the spectrum in comparison to your fellow Wolfpack peers. This event will be located at the African American Cultural Center. So moving on to this Friday's diversity events. First up on the list is an event sponsored by the Office for Institutional Equality and Diversity and Human Resources. This event is titled Fundamentals of Equal Opportunity. This course is intended to provide participants with a fundamental understanding of equal opportunity and affirmative action laws and policies. The session will outline relevant laws such as Title VII, Title IX, and ADA, including groups protected by each, and will touch on corresponding institutional policies. Participants will learn how to identify discrimination and harassment and will be exposed to examples of how to prohibit conduct that may appear in professional or academic environments and will highlight relevant case laws on these topics. This course also includes a brief explanation of how affirmative action works both in employment and academic contexts. To register for the Applied Skills and Equal Opportunity Workshop, please register directly in MyPAC portal under Learning and Development. Again, this event will be on Friday from 8.15 to 10.15 at Tally Room 3210. The last event on the community calendars list is an event sponsored by the African American Cultural Center. This event is titled What's on the Table and will be occurring from 3 to 4.30 in the African American Cultural Center located within Witherspoon Student Center. So come out and debrief Diversity Education Week in a secure space with real conversation about issues that matter. Gain wisdom, offer support, embrace unity at What's on the Table. And this concludes the community calendars Diversity Week events. If you are planning for an event and would like to get the word spread, WKNC 88.1 is an excellent way to reach a targeted audience. You could go ahead and email a short 90 to 100 word description of your event to publicaffairs at WKNC.org. So again, my name is Peter Swazeni, and this concludes the community calendar. I hope you all a great week ahead and enjoy Diversity Week. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. This is Ian Grice with Eye on the Triangle. And if you are still listening for Diversity Education Week, we have the password code for you to enter the drawing. The password code is I-E-Y-E. Thank you for listening. Indigenous Peoples Day was yesterday, as was Columbus Day. 
On campus, we celebrated the Indigenous Peoples Day, a holiday that acknowledges the experience of people that lived in the Americas long before Christopher Columbus arrived. In the spring, Nick Savage, the former public affairs director of WKNC, interviewed Native American students on campus that wrote and supported a bill passed in student government to ask the university to change the calendar. However, since the spring, the student body president signed the bill and faculty senate passed a resolution supporting the students. However, NC State has yet to change their calendar. Students on campus are still celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day and student government is passing around a petition so that Raleigh City Council will change their calendar to Indigenous Peoples Day away from Columbus Day. That's all we have for you this evening. I'd like to thank Kevin Kronk, Saif Hassan, Jake Winners, Peter Svazini, and the NC State Drum Circle for contributing. As always, if you've heard anything you've liked, you've hated, or anything that made you think, let us know and tweet us at WKNC underscore EOT. Also, be sure to check out our blog, WKNC-EOT.tumblr.com, where you can also catch up on more local news. You can also download our podcast, and you can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice.